All right, fellow fact checkers, be sure to head over to Fox and Sons Coffee and check out the best coffee sponsor a guy could ever hope for. And if you use the code FCT for fact check this at checkout, you will get 18% off any order of $25 or more. Also, be sure to check out the subscription packages. And any order of $37.99 or more goes free shipping. Check out the light blend, the dark blend, the uh, medium blend, the electric boogaloo, and the decaf. Be sure to check out Fox and Sons Coffee. So let's start the show. This episode will be completely taken out of context. Welcome to the Fact Check This Podcast. All right, Fact Check This Podcast, and let's just jump right into it. Today is a topic that I I always get a lot of pushback on my opposition to public schools and uh, what's going on in public schools. I'm a huge, fierce opponent of uh, teachers' unions. I personally, uh, while I send my kids to public school for varying reasons, um, I'm not a big fan or proponent of them, and and I spend a significant time teaching my kids how to be a nuisance towards that system and uh, being one myself. So my mother, many of my friends, was a my mother was a, a preschool teacher for. Geez, I don't remember how long, 20 years, probably. Uh, I've got a lot of friends who are currently teachers, former teachers. I'm, you know, it, uh, I hear a lot of the arguments in favor of public education. And just to be completely blunt, you're all wrong. Uh, public education, as it is construed, in our modern society is uh, completely worthless. And the Department of Education has done nothing but hurt the learning ability of students and our, in, in like it's wrecked entire generations, um, especially the way it's been done for the last 25 to 30 years. So with all of that said, let's jump right into an article from the Washington Post, Gaslighting Americans About Public Schools. The Truth About a Nation at Risk In April of 1983, a commission convened by President Ronald Reagan's Education Secretary, Terrell H. Bell, released a landmark report about the nation's public education system, A Nation at Risk, the Imperative for Educational Reform. It famously warned, Our nation is at risk. Our once unchallenged uh, Preeminence in commerce, industry, science, and techno technological innovation is being overtaken by competitors throughout the world. If an unfriendly foreign power had attempted to impose on America the mediocre educational performance that exists today, we might well have viewed it as an act of war. As I wrote in 2018, the authors used statistics to paint a disturbing picture of the country's public system, though it turned out that a lot of the data was cherry-picked to confirm previously decided conclusions about the awful state of America's schools. The piece I published by James Harvey and David Berliner explained how the report and its aftermath in waves of school reforms was bungled. <clears throat> it said, for example, the bumbling began immediately. Reagan startled the commission members by hailing their call for prayer in schools, school vouchers, and the abolition of the Department of Education. The commission hadn't said a word about any of these things. Indeed, the commission had been launched 
by the then Secretary of Education Terrell Bell to fend off the president's 1980 campaign proposal to abolish the department. In its report, it laid out a strong argument in favor of a vigorous federal presence in educational and education to support vulnerable students, high, aid higher education and research, and protect civil rights. These suggestions were quickly relegated to the dustbin of history, as well they should have. Here's a piece about how the report was created and its impact. It was written by Harvey, who was a senior staff member of the National Com uh, Commission on Excellence in Education, which wrote A Nation to at Risk. Harvey contributed to it. He retired, retired in 2021 as executive director of the National Superintendent's Roundtable, a nonprofit organization that supports its members of approximately 100 school su superintendents from 30 states. This is by James Harvey. I recently came across uh, Stephen Weir's History's Worst Decisions and the People Who Made Them and looked through it to see if A Nation at Risk and the 40-Year Educational Disaster that is the modern education reform movement following its publication made the cut. Inclusion in this list, Weir wrote, demanded idi idiocy on a scale that exacted a very high price in lives or livelihoods. Compared to such appalling blunders as Napoleon's 19, or 1812 decision to invade Russia, the little 36-page report that was a nation at risk was very small beer and wasn't included. But just as most of Weir's worst decisions rested on ignorance and pride, so too did the rhetoric and recommendations of a nation at risk. The public and policymakers, by and large, have gone along for the ride. Story continues. Uh, Early in his tenure as president, Ronald Reagan's, Ronald Reagan's education secretary, Terrell Bell, a former Utah State Superintendent of Education, visited the department's research arm, the National Institute of Education, where I served as chief of staff. He wanted to talk about his hopes for the future. Bell ex had experienced and canny uh, was Bell and experienced and canny bureaucrat was taking over the very education department that Reagan had vowed to abolish during the 1980 presidential campaign. So how to proceed? Bell told us that he wanted to create a National Commission on Excellence in Education that would be charged with examining the state of America's public schools. He asked Milton Goldberg, acting director of NIE, to get the commission off the ground and serve as its executive director. Goldberg turned to me and another NIE aide, Peter Gerber, to help with establishing and staffing the commission. We went all in with creating a commission that represented the stakeholders in America's schools. The 18-member commission included four college and university presidents, seven members representing K-12 school constituencies uh, from such groups as state and local superintendents, school principals, and school boards, one teacher, two retired business leaders, a former governor, and an entrepreneur. The chairman of the commission was David Pierpoint Gardner. Who was who in 1983 was the University of Utah's president before becoming the president of the University of California, but it was two other academics who had the biggest impact on the report writing process. One was Gerald Holton, who served as a highly distinguished physics professor at Harvard University. The other was Glenn T. Seaborg, a Nobel laureate in, chemist in chemistry, who helped discover ten elements on the periodic table many of us studied in high school, and who had advised the White House and State Department on the 1963 Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. 
By my count at the time, a nation at risk ran through 13 drafts before it went to the printer. The staff thought the report would be based on the evidence we received during the first 12 months of the committee's life from hearings and some 40 papers commissioned from academic experts. It wasn't. Without any real guidance from the commission members about what they wanted to say, I developed two successive white papers reflecting on what we had heard from experts on the complexities of the school system in the United States. The essence of the two lengthy papers was that American schools had accomplished great things for the United States and were now faced with the joint challenges of, one, successfully educating a more diverse and lower-income population through high school, and two, improving standards or we risk becoming mired in mediocrity. Virtually every reference to accomplishments of American schools in the and the challenges of diversity and poverty disappeared from the succeeding drafts. At the meeting to discuss my second draft, Holton showed up with a brilliant polemic, a handwritten draft he had developed on a plane on the way to Washington from Boston. He read it aloud and the, to the assembled commissioners. Castigating American public schools for the failures of American society, and in particular the nation's declining economic competitiveness, it became the foundation of a nation at risk. There were at least three problems with what the commission finally produced. First, it settled on its conclusions and then selected evidence to support them, as most of this research stuff tends to do. Second, it, its argument was based on shockingly shoddy logic. And third, it proposed a curricular response that ignored the complexity of American life and the economic and racial divisions within the United States. Holton's draft went through 10 revisions as the commission cherry-picked and misrepresented data to fix the facts in support of its argument. As James W. Guthrie, an academic who admired the report and thought it was on balance a good thing, put it, the commissioners were hell-bent on proving that schools were bad. They cooked the books to get what they wanted. The public was told that American students lagged seriously behind in international comparisons of student achievement, even though Sweden's... Uh, Thorsten Husen, chairman of the International Association for Evaluation of Educational Achievement, warned the commission not to do that. He said international achievement comparisons were an exercise in comparing the incomparable due to the enormous differences in enrollment, curriculums, objectives, goals, and the organization of school systems. 17-year-olds in the United States, the commission said, showed a steady decline in science achievement on tests administered in 1969. 73 and 77 by the National Assessment of Education Progress. Known as NAEP, the system of assessments is seen as most as the most consistent nationally representative measure of U.S. student achievement since the 90s and is supposed to be able to assess what students know and can do. What the report didn't say was that the steady declines had been eliminated in the 1982 NAEP assessment, according to the assessment expert Gerald W. Bracey. He also thought it odd that scores, of 17, that scores for 17-year-olds in science were highlighted uh, while eight positive NAEP trend lines for ages 9, 13, and 17 in reading, math, and science were ignored. But it was the introduction of an argument based on appalling shoddy logic, appallingly shoddy logic that was the commission's greatest sin. Our nation is at risk, declared the commission in the opening paragraph, and it went on in a line I provided. The educational foundations of our society are presently being eroded by a rising tide of mediocrity that threatens our very future as a nation and a people. 
I included it because I was worried about standards and about maintaining the commitment of pioneering educational philosophers, such as Horace Mann and John Dewey, to schools as the foundational engine of social progress. But according to the commission writing the report, public schools were responsible for Japan eating our economic lunch and for one, of, one great American industry after another falling to world competition. This language transformed schools from engines of social progress to engines of economic competitiveness. Ms. Smith in fourth grade and Mr. Brown in grade 11 had a very heavy burden to bear. Japan was actually in an economic downturn in 1983 when the report was released. In an excess of bombast, the report declared if an unfriendly foreign power had attempted to impose on America the mediocre, the mediocre educational performance that exists today, we might as well have viewed it as an act of war. This language came perilously close to defining teachers and administrators as enemies of the United States. What surprised me watching the individual members of the commission absorb this argument is that not a single public school educator in the group objected as the report, with their names on it, trashed their profession and cast educators as among the great economic villains of the United States. When I pointed out to Holton that our report ignored the appalling poverty, destitution, and segregation in which so many American students lived, he shrugged. Uh, no, the Washington Post sought a comment from Holton, but he could not be reached. Even amid the height of the Cold War, this was just a preposterous diagnosis of the ills of, econ of American economy. As the eminent educational historian Lawrence A. Kremen had told the commission, the nation's economic competitiveness depended on trade and monetary policy and on the decisions made in the White House and on Capitol Hill and by the Departments of Treasury and Commerce long before it depended on public schools. The sad truth is that the commission spent 18 months to produce a flawed report. In just a few weeks, a task force on education was created that was created for President-elect John F. Kennedy's transition, issued a 1961 report that came closer to the mark when it also called for excellence in education with the, or with the notation, millions of children, particularly in certain rural areas and in the great cities, are deprived of an opportunity to develop talents that are needed both for society and for their own lives. The task force committee concludes that priorities should be given to a vigorous program to lift the schools to a new level of excellence. The rhetorical differences between the measured tone of the Kennedy Task Force and the polemics of the Excellence Commission are noteworthy. Kennedy's task force then went on to make recommendations about funding for all schools and specifically advocated for additional funding for schools in low-income rural, income, rural and urban areas. Misguided curricular response. This has been boring, I'm sure, for most people listening. What we're getting to is, so the development of the Department of Education put forth uh, a lot of standards in uh, how things should be done from an educational standpoint. And then you've got the um, trying to put everybody on the same level. Well, the problem with trying to put everybody on the same level is that what ultimately ends up happening is instead of everybody gets elevated to the same high level, <clears throat> Somewhere in the middle or low middle is where everybody ends up getting reshuffled to to create, you know, equality across the board. And so that's what had been happening up to this point. And that's why Reagan was pushing for, you know, the abolition of the Department of Education, which honestly would have been the right thing and allow education to kind of be a free for all uh, 
figure itself out, you know, the, the marketplace of ideas and, and let free, free market economics kind of guide how, uh, how schools end up coming about. Uh, so, but what we're going to get into is um, changing the curriculum to try to uh, make things better. while looking at things from a very flawed statistical standpoint. So the things that you're trying to make better aren't necessarily what needs to be worked on. Uh, it, this, is, this is all going to lead to what kind of came, back, came about in the late 80s and early 90s that uh, a lot of people my age probably can remember where like standardized testing every single year kind of became the norm. And, and schools, instead of basing their curriculums on where you were and what needed to be done, we're basing their curriculums on these tests and how do we get our students to get good test scores. So, so here, here we're we're gonna we're getting into that stuff. Uh, sorry, this it's long, but I, I feel like this is important stuff that um, to understand the history where this stuff came from is is valuable and it helps us to move forward, looking at things through the correct light and um, uh, prepared to make the changes where they need to like more funding is not the solution to any of these problems. They've been doing that for a long time. The problem that more funding results in is that the more funding that they give to schools and these school corporations, the more administrators they add and the, and the less they actually add to legitimate teaching and stuff like that. Um, the more that they're focused on standardized testing, the less they're focused on actual individual students and, and the way students learn and the way students grow and develop. As the commission polished up its, an, its analysis of how the nation was at risk and why schools were particular peculiar, peculiarly at fault, how to address this crisis was a conundrum. Several, dra several drafts went by without any recommendations. The comprehensive high school, which accommodated the educational needs of students interested in vocational education as well as those interested in pursuing college degrees, had long been hailed as one of the glories of American public education. But Holton arrived at a meeting with a series of curricular recommendations for all students that were slotted right in as the commission's major contribution. He called it the new basics, essentially the high school curriculum required for students interested in attending Ivy League colleges. The new basics contemplated four years of English in high school, three years of mathematics, three years of science, three years of social studies, and a half year of computer science. Everyone would follow this curriculum. For the college-bound, an additional two years of foreign language study was recommended. The commission was recommending that practically every secondary school student in the United States follow a course of studies in high school that serious scholars of American public schools, such as James B. Conant, a former president of Harvard, had recommended only for the 15 to 20 percent of high school students judged to be academically talented. It signaled the end of vocational education in which millions of students would have thrived. There it is. It is unfortunate that a straight line can be drawn from a nation at risk to the culture wars now consuming American public schools. The line runs as followed. An undertow trash, trashing schools and government. The report, while putting education near the top of the national agenda, has served as an undertow helping undermine confidence in educators and public schools while trashing government generally. The argument of wholesale school failure has been an essential bulwark of the effort to privatize public education 
by diverting public funds into school vouchers and unaccountable charter schools, particularly the scandal-plagued for-profit charter sector. So this is where we're going to deviate. She was she was right about what this did and what it's uh, – so the consequences are that it pushed this straight line, like everything has to be done in a particular way on the public school system. And then the public school system dumps a ton of money into doing it. We'll – I don't have much left. I'll finish going through her uh, her consequences here, and then um, then I'll get into my my part of it. Um, vocational education, which flourished in public schools in the post World War II era, in part due to the unflinching support of former Harvard University President James B. Conant, has withered on the vine. Both major political parties have essentially ignored the challenges facing working class Americans by creating a school system that ignores their needs. An obsession with achievement tests. We have become an achievement test obsessed society, as Jack Jennings, a keen observer of K-12 policy for nearly five decades, has noted. A, prom a promising standards movement was hijacked by standardization or by standardized testing that emerged from a nation at risk. No child left behind. The K-12 education law signed by in 20, uh, 2002 by President George W. Bush and Race to the Top, the multi-billion dollar grant program of President Barack Obama, put higher stakes on students' standardized test scores in math and English language arts, crowding out other subjects. And after effects mean that the major question teachers and administrators must answer these days is what's the effect on test scores in English and mathematics? The arts, physical education, recess, social studies, and history have been reduced as scores in the two tested subjects have come to define what's important in today's school. Villains in a culture wars. A nation at risk also helped lay the foundation for 40 years of gaslighting Americans about the prob problems our society faces. Distracted by the false argument that most of our economic problems can be laid at, at the school door, policymakers have been able to ignore major problems, including growing inequality, homelessness, drug addiction, and the epidemic of gun violence in the United States. Perversely, the report created the conditions in which, not content to blame teachers for school failure and the nation's economic challenges, right-wing right -wing critics have now cast them in a role of villains in the culture war. Leaders in many Republican-led states are restricting what teachers can talk to students about, the real history of the country, race, race and racism, gender and identity, as well as restricting books and promoting curriculum that, that locks in their interpretation of American history. I'm going to pop out and I'm going to address all of that now. Because this is about fucking ridiculous. <laughs> um, okay, so especially that last part, making teachers into uh, villains in the culture war. If it wasn't for the fact that we have so many teachers who are doing TikTok videos talking about how they how much time they spend and how they are using their classrooms as a sounding board for all of this woke crazed nonsense that kids shouldn't be exposed to nobody's being told that they can't teach about race racism the civil war slavery things like that what they're being told is you're not allowed to teach CRT and the 1819 project which are just absolute horseshit and don't belong in a classroom because they're fiction they're not reality they're being told there is no such thing as a don't say gay bill that doesn't exist there's it's nowhere in there that you can't say gay it's not that they're not allowed to teach about gender it's that they're not allowed to teach sex education to third graders it's that 
there are certain there's there's no restricting or banning books or promoting curriculum that locks in an interpretation of American history. There is the removal of and the suspension of stuff that is inappropriate for children, stuff that is graphically pornographic, that is graphically violent, that is graphically sexual, things that sh kids should not be exposed to. That's what's going on. This whole the right wing is like against teachers is absolute fucking nonsense. No Child Left Behind was the next step in what had already been a bad policy coming out of uh, uh, the a nation at risk. So a nation at risk put a, an emphasis on the standardized testing and stuff like that, put an emphasis on the very specific curriculum for everybody and took away from focusing on individuals. The, the way that this tries to demonize public schools or uh, private schools and charter schools and stuff like that, those schools actually focus on individual students and individual ways to learn and give kids an opportunity to break away from that standardized system that the author so bemoans. You want to, this is this went from being a, a good piece explaining the history of how we got to the point that we got to becoming a left wing rag as the Washington Post always does. Like it it completely completely ignores the reality of where we are in the country and what's actually going on in these school systems, especially in the private schools and the charter schools and stuff like that, and what's actually going on with the things that are be done, being done in more conservative states where they're trying to rein in the Department of Education. They're trying to rein in some of this ridiculous bullshit that is not helping students learn, that is not helping students actually become prepared for the real world to have jobs, to go into a, a, a job place that's trying to restrict a lot of this nonsense that is doing nothing more than promoting dumbass bullshit that has no place in a classroom. If we want to, and, and the problem that we're running into is because there are so many administrators and there are so many people who are only concerned about pushing certain agendas and not actually concerned about education, who are only concerned about the standardized tests and making those scores and don't care about, I mean, my kids have like 20 minutes of, so all through elementary school, my kids had like 20, maybe 30 minutes of recess immediately after lunch every day. That's fucking insane like kids should be outside doing stuff and and working off the energy like it's no wonder that they're putting every fucking seven-year-old boy on some sort of a uh downer to keep them to make them sit still you're not giving them enough time to burn off the energy I, we had i think when i was in elementary school we had like 20 30 minutes in the morning and then you had like a long lunch and then you would also have uh like 45 minutes to an hour at the end of the day to to get outside. So like you had you had breaks, you had you were breaking up the and now they just sit in the classroom and get this shit drilled into them all day long. Like that's not how kids learn. And and that's one of the things that these private schools and these other like non public schools are doing is they're trying to break that monotony up and tailor the education towards the individual instead of going based on this very structured uh, you know, no child left behind bullshit system that's that's in place. It's 
the the article started out with such promise and then she just turns to woke trash which uh, i mean it's to be expected with washington post but still like we get into this ending here and and it just ignores the reality of like you spend so much time bemoaning how uh, a nation at risk ignored reality and cherry picked stuff and then you turn around and you ignore what's actually going on and cherry pick some bullshit to make points that are, are non-existent. I mean, this is the problem with education and educators is because this is a person that was involved in that. I mean, you can't get away from it. It's, and it permeates out into everything. Like that's, this is the way that, that people do things. Let's, let's wrap up. One of the tragedies around a nation at risk was not simply that it misdiagnosed the problem and put forth Erzad's solutions, but that it refused to face up to the financial implications of its argument. Staff suggestions uh, that there should that there be some budget response to the definition of a national catastrophe were dismissed by university presidents on the commission, perhaps because they were unwilling to see funding for higher education threatened by increased funding for K through 12 schools. Had the commission entered the treacherous waters of school finance, which promotes inequity in public education with a system that relies in large part on local property taxes, it would inevitably have to deal with the troublesome issue of childhood poverty and unequal opportunity, a topic that commission leaders avoided. In the end, this was a missed opportunity. The report was a product, like the other blunders identified by Stephen Weir, of decisions grounded in ignorance and pride. In this case, commission leaders isolated from the real problems of the society about which they pontificated and arrogantly convinced that the answers they sought could be found in, fault, in faculty lounge, misread the nature of the problem, misinterpreted the cause, and misled the American people. The thing about the funding, though, is if you look at it like inner city schools and the ones that are failing the most, are also the ones that spend the most money and have the largest amount of funding. They're also the ones that have the highest number of administrators and some of the highest uh, student-to-teacher ratios. Private schools don't have those problems. They actually, the, the amount of funding that goes to most of those private schools is anywhere from like a third to a quarter of what's going to the big public schools. And and yet, they're spending more per they're spending more per student on the students than what those big overfunded schools are because all of their money is going to administrators. Like you, the, the author of this got all of the, she got the diagnosis right, but she gets the prescription wrong. The way that public education, especially being run through the department of education is done. It just makes things worse. That, that has to be gotten rid of. I, I don't like, I don't. If it's people like this who are leading the country in, in education and educational decisions, then nothing's ever going to change. Like you're going to have to break away from the current mold, throwing more money at it, trying to create equity, trying to you know, like tailor things towards more diversity and blah, 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 bullshit, bullshit, teach some ridiculous nonsense that doesn't actually help students learn. Figure out ways to create good human beings who are going to be good in the workforce. 
who are going to understand finance, who are going to understand hard work, who are going to understand what it is that's required of you to be successful. And none of these standardized testing and, and none of the uh, revisionist woke nonsense history and, and other stuff that they want to teach, none of that does that. Like produce good human beings. That's your job. And we have failed miserably. And and not only have the schools failed, but parents have failed too. And that's why there is such a big movement in private schools and uh, alternative types of schools, homeschooling, stuff like that, homes like homeschool uh, corporations or, or something like that is what they they call it. like they're uh, not corporations. Uh, Co-ops, homeschool co-ops, uh, so stuff like that, or like community community schooling type stuff, uh, getting back to teaching kids how to be good human beings and how to be productive members of society and not focusing on a bunch of standardized bullshit that isn't going to help them in the long run. That'll do it for today. I will be back on Wednesday with a brand new episode. I'm trying to decide. I've got, I'm trying to decide whether I want to get suicided by the Clintons or not. Uh, it's, I've got an article called, uh, it's a, uh, a list of 71 Clinton associates who died mysteriously or committed suicide before their testimony. I'm trying to decide if I want to do that one or if I want to talk about um, some some more of the trans stuff and, and stuff that's going on with uh, kids in, and, and, and that, um, that kind of stuff. <sighs> I'm probably going to talk about the Hillary one. So if you don't see me after Wednesday, you know what happened but I ain't going out without a fight. But I will be back for Wednesday, at least. So I'll see you then. Later. Before you go, make sure you check out our great sponsor, Agorist Acres. Now, agoristacres.com, you can find over 100 varieties of seeds. They've got vegetables, flowers, all kinds of stuff. They've got heritage brands, everything that you want to start any kind of garden that you need. It's free shipping on any order of $20 or more. They've got cool packaging, and most of the seeds come in a fancy glass vial, no paper envelopes. They accept U.S. dollars and crypto and can easily take either at checkout. Now be sure to head over to agoristacres.com and anything that you get, use the promo code FCT at checkout for 10% off your order. I say all the time that you need to be starting your own garden, you need to be growing your own food, you need to be getting off the grid and becoming less dependent on grocery stores and stuff like that. Agorist Acres is a great first start. They have got everything you need for whatever kind of garden you want. Great people, great product, highly recommend. So go check them out.